Think about your favorite movie. Think about your favorite movie. Name some favorite movies. Just yell it out. Oh, you're my hero. Shawshank Redemption, Air 5. There we go. What else? The Incredibles. The Shining. Man, you're twisted. What? Did you say Mulan? Cool Hand Luke. What else? What? It? The new one or the old one? What happens at the end of every movie? What is it? The credits are at the end of every movie, right? Now, how many of you, be honest, until Marvel started making these in-credit scenes, actually watched any of the credits? Like, nobody, right? You do? You sit there and watch all of them? You know, sometimes, like, really anticlimactic. Which Marvel movie was it? Was it the Spider-Man Homecoming, where at the end, Captain America's like, you literally waited that entire time. This is very anticlimactic. Do you remember that scene? The very last scene of the in-credits of Spider-Man Homecoming is Captain America's like, that's it. Right? Think about this. Think about the amount of effort and work that went into each and every one of those movies. And now imagine you waiting to see your name as the key grip. I still don't know what a key grip is. Or imagine you're the boom mic handler. And you wait this entire movie. The movie might not be anything good. But you wait for the entire two and a half hours. Sometimes three hours if you're J.R. Tolkien. And you wait for three hours just to see I'm the key grip holder. And you're so proud to see that name. But in reality, the rest of us have no idea who that person is, right? There's like hundreds of names on there. And now with nowadays, the only reason we even stay is because we want to see there's an end credit scene, which actually most of us, if we're smart, before the movie even starts, we pull out our phones, Google, is there an end credit scene in the Avengers? How many? Right? That's what we do. We don't just sit there because otherwise it's absolutely boring just to sit there and watch name, 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 name. And we have no idea who people are. But what makes a good story? What is it always? There's three things a good story always has to have. What is it? A beginning, middle, end. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. Imagine this. Imagine Jesus being an author of your faith. So imagine your life written as a story. Imagine your life written as a story. And I had a roommate one time who said, do you think you could write your story any better? Usually my first response was, yeah, I would have more money. I would be three inches even taller. I would not, yeah, all, they had all these different things that I would add to it, right? I'm sure all of us have those different things that we probably want to add. But think about it. Think about your circumstances, the blessings that you have. Do you really think you could actually write it any better than what God has already written your individual story? Think about that. Now with that, realize that your story, that your individual life, your story is just a small blip on the timeline of history, right? How many people, I'll always remember because he's a homecoming king, but 200 years from now, how many people are going to remember George Harris from Williamstown High School? And now unless he goes on because he's a homecoming president, he's probably going to be president of our, you know, country. 2048, I don't know, just first number popped in my head, George Harris, 2048. Uh, but think about this. Think about yourself. 200 years from now, someone go, I remember that person. Or I've learned about this person. Think about, think about in 2,000 years, just since Jesus has been left the earth, think about 2,000 years of history. Our country's only been around for 240, 250 years, roughly. 240 to 250 years of history. How, mu- how many people do we really even think about? 
These are around 45 presidents that we talk about, 44 actually. 44 presidents we think about. Then we got a few of those like Civil War guys every now and then. We have, we always, a lot of times we think about the bad people. We can, like most people can name the people who assassinated presidents more than they can name the president. Think about that. Now think about this. Since day one, since God created all things, how many people do you think have been coming through this world? There's 7 billion people now. How many do you think there have been? I mean, we're talking a massive number, right? Do you think that on the day that your life ends, when God comes, brings everything back, when Jesus comes back and restores all things, if the credits roll, do you think that your life has been important enough that it's going to show up as one of the names in the credits? Because guess what? God's story has nothing to do with us. There's not going to be this, oh, look, there's Becky Postaway. I remember her. There's not going to be, oh, there's Wyatt Durham, key grip holder. Because in reality, when we get to that end credit, there's only going to be one name. And who is it? God. Because this book is all about who? This book is all about who? God. Yes, it is all about God. That's what we're going to look at tonight. So, so far, we've been going through Romans. We've gone... We're going to do three chapters tonight, but we're not even going to do three chapters. We're only going to do three verses of three chapters. We've gone into chapter 11. The first several chapters have shaped the church, modern church's theology more than just about any other book. Romans 1 through 11 has shaped theology just about more than any other book in Scripture. Because so far we've talked about the gospel and how Jesus came and what he did. Why did he come? And it says in Romans chapter 1 that God made visible his attributes so everyone would be without excuse. But then we talked about the next week, we talked about sin, and that man went to their flesh, man went to their own sinful desires, and God handed them over to their desires, and they became wicked people. And we said in Romans chapter 3 that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, in Romans chapter 5, for the wages of sin is death. That's what we all deserve. And then we talked about, excuse me a second, gospel, sin, sucked in this. Salvation, salvation, wow, the big one that I forget is salvation, that salvation has been made available to all people, it wasn't just the Jews, it wasn't just the Gentiles, it has been made available to all people, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, and that's been made available to each and every one of you. Then the next week, and I, I don't forget this one, it was sanctification, you remember, I remember what sanctification meant, being made whole, you're so good, being made whole. This idea of this is how we were supposed to be, this is what we became because of sin, and here's what we're becoming. Well, tonight I'm going to give you another word. Say sovereignty. sovereignty. Anybody know what it means to be sovereign? The person wearing the UK shirt. Do you ever, Julie, she's got a UK, United Kingdom shirt on. They have a ruler. Who is it? Queen is considered the sovereign ruler of the UK, the monarch. The what? Huh? What's singular? Anyways, the sovereign ruler overall. So basic definition, according to the, so the word sovereignty, is that a supreme authority for all things are underneath your control. So in the case of God, God is a supreme authority and all things are under his control. 
if you want to understand this idea of God being a sovereign God, which I'm not trying to throw big theological words out there that you all just scratch your head and stare at me, think of this way. God created, God creates, God sustains. He's still over all things. Zach McCray, are you the head of, the, uh, the head of your household? <laughs> you hope so. No, underneath his and his wife, Joby, underneath their house, who's in charge of their house? Him and Joby, right? If Parker looks at him and says, no, I'm in charge of this house. How old is Parker? Four. That's not going to go well, is it? She does it? Do you let her? No. Because you're the ultimate authority in the house. She can't tell Zach and Joby how to run the house. They can't tell, even though she does, but she can't tell them how to take care of the house, how to mow the yard. They can't do it to maintain everything, right? The same is true of God. He is the ultimate authority. He creates all things, sustains all things. In another passage in Romans chapter 8, some of you may have heard this, it references a potter in the clay. Think about that. How many of you are artistic and can do like clay stuff? Anybody? No. Okay, no one. You know how you make clay, right? You make pots. So someone's there, that thing is spinning, they're forming this pot. What if the pot turned back to the potter? That's not how I'm supposed to look. That's not how I'm supposed to do this. That's not what I'm supposed to do, right? It's insane to think about. God, it says God is the potter. We are the clay. But here's the things that we start running into. If that we're going to say God is over all things, what is man's response to that? Because in Romans chapter 8, it says God, or excuse me, Romans chapter 9, says God is over all things and he has elected and predestined these people. Since God knew who, he was, who was going to be saved, he knew who was going to believe in him, he knew all these different things. And if you read that passage alone, we have this understanding that God knows who's going to heaven, he already knows who's going to hell, so what's the point of anything? And most, there's two sides of this coin. Because if you go to the next chapter, Romans chapter 10, it's God showing us a different story. That man still has a responsibility. And so now what happens is that we have this two sides I'm going to tell you something real quick. We're going to do a series in January about this a little bit further. I have been black and white in my thinking since, like, birth. But I have come to believe one thing. The most black and white belief that I have. You ready to hear it? Not everything is black and white. The most black and white belief that I have in this world is that not everything is black and white. It's not just this or that. It's not just right or left. It's not just Democrat or Republican. There are gray things in this world, right? You believe that? And so what happens in church is like, oh, no, no, no. God knows everything. He knows who's going to heaven. He knows, he knows who's going to hell. So we have this over here. And then way over here, we have these other people like, no, man's completely responsible for everything that they do in life. God's way over there. We're in charge of everything. And it's like, wait, 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 wait. I'm right here in the middle. I don't, I'm not over here. I had to do a survey one time for a church that was interested in hiring me. I almost moved to Florida. It would have been a lot warmer than it is today, but I'm glad it didn't happen because they were so black and white. It says, are you an Arminianist or a Calvinist, which means nothing to most of you all. But Calvinist is way over here, and Arminianist are way over here. I'm like, dude, where's the third option? Where's the third option? Because it's not always black and white. The best way I can describe this to you is that God is sovereign over all things, but guess what? You and I still have responsibilities. Would you agree? Jack, you are over all things in your house, you and your wife. Does your child still have responsibility? Yeah. She doesn't do 
everything the way you wanted her to do it, right? But you are still over top of her, and she is still under your care, and she still has responsibilities. Have you ever seen people in a downtown city? How many of you have been to like a major downtown city where they got giant skyscrapers, right? The worst job in the world, in my opinion, are the people that do window washing. You know what I'm talking about? They get these giant platforms hanging on by cords, and they go up and down these giant skyscrapers washing windows. I'm like, there's got to be a better way of doing a 100-story building than me hanging down from this tiny little rope. Now, what would happen if all of a sudden I go over to this side, there's me, me and another person. Hudson's just, let's say it's me and you. Hudson, you're on this side, I'm on this side. I walk over and I grab a hold of this cord and just pull as hard as I can on it. What happens? You're, you're dead. If Hudson goes over to the other side and says, my turn, and he just yanks down on that, what's going to happen? I'm gone. We have to have a balance, right? Because it's not just black and white. God is over top of all things. But if I pull so hard on that, everyone's going to hell who's predestined to go to hell. Then I go over here. If I pull so hard on this, God's not even in the picture. I'm in charge of everything, which in reality is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. It's like Parker looking back at Zach saying, I am the real ruler of this home. You have no authority over me. Right? It's not all that black and white. But here's why this happens. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It's A.W. Tozer. When you think about God, what comes into your mind is the most important thing about you. Because how you answer that question, is there a God, is the most most radically important question you can ever answer. Because the ramifications for that question has bigger consequences than any other question you'll ever answer. So what comes into your mind when you think about God? So you have a small view of God... If you have a small value of God, you're not going to have a very big God, right? But if I had this supreme big rule value, or excuse me, value for God, I'm allow him to control my life in different ways, right? How I view God is the most important thing about us. But what happens is we like to place God in a box so often. But what we need to realize is that we need to stop placing limitations on a limitless God. We need to stop putting limitations on a limitless God. So what happens is, is you get people over here on this side, it's like, uh, Tony, and I, Tony and I went to a conference back <clears throat> last October, and these people were, were so rigid in their thinking that if I did not completely under- agree with every single detail that they believed in this section of Scripture, that I was a, a heretic, that I was a bad teacher, I was a bad preacher, bad pastor, because I didn't agree with every single thing that they said. And I was so aggravated because if what they were doing was like, this is how I understand, this is how I think, so this is how I'm going to control God and make him think the way I think. It's like, I, this, is how I, this is what I believe. And we do this in so many different avenues in life that when you hear someone's, like, here's, here's a prime example. I might offend some people here, but I'm not going to say it anyway, so I don't care. In our political landscape today, there was a, there was a, 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 a blog written a couple weeks ago, and I got livid. It says, Here's why Jesus would be a Republican. I'm like, whoa. So I read it. In the comments, we all know Jesus was a liberal, so he'd be a Democrat because Jesus turned the world upside down, so he was anti-cultural, so he was liberal. I'm like, Jesus would not be even limited to a stupid political party. 
But what happens is your mind is so warped and so controlled by a political party, a stance, a circumstance in your life, that this is how you're going to limit God, this is what you're going to make him into. Instead of being made in the image of God, you're making God in the image of you. Don't put limitations on a limitless God. Romans 8, 28, and this is where we ended last week. This verse can be a little difficult. Teresa and I were talking about this earlier. It's a hard one to rationalize. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purposes. What happens when we think that is that all things in my life, all good, all bad, how can you really tell me that they're all going to work for the good? I have had a hard time reading that passage in certain circumstances in my life. I've had a rough time doing that. I've had rough times recently reading this passage. Because all that we do, we put God in a box, we limit God and say, God, you cannot take this negative circumstance, you cannot take this horror in my life and make something good out of it. Because God, you are limited. But the reality is, as you see in Scripture, there's nothing, absolutely nothing, that can stop the plans or will of God. So nothing catches God by surprise. You realize that? My, 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 my mother and my father always said, and this is the improper English, so just whatever, we're Appalachian here. It says, God don't say oops. There is nothing since the, day, since the day, very beginning that God's like, oh, I didn't see that one coming. If you would think about this, back in November of 2016, God would go, man, I did not see Trump winning. That's, wow, that was crazy. Man, I thought you all's votes were going to do it. Man, you th- I thought you all were in charge there. Man, I thought Hillary was going to do it. Nothing catches God by surprise. Nothing. If, the, if we go down to the story of God, Let me say that again. Nothing can stop the plans or the will of God. In Genesis chapter 3, you all studied this a couple weeks ago in your life groups. In Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered the world, God wasn't like, oh, crap, now what? There's actually a a Latin phrase based off the Hebrew in that language, proto-evangelium. Say proto-evangelium. Yay, see, no Latin now. It's like the only Latin I know. Proto-evangelium, what that means is that was the very first time the gospel was ever presented. Genesis chapter 3, the very first time Jesus was ever even hinted at was in Genesis chapter 3, thousands of years before he ever walked the earth. Because what happened in Genesis chapter 3? God creates all things and declares that it was what? Very good. Get it right. Very good. Sin enters the world. Satan comes in and goes, hey, I know God says don't eat that tree, but did he really say that? He starts getting them to question what God really said, and they're like, oh, maybe he didn't say that. And then Eve's like, hey, I think we should go eat that. What kind of fruit was it? Just a piece of fruit. Thank you. <laughs> I had some people convinced a couple weeks ago it was kiwi. Um, such a sinful fruit. Um, but they eat the fruit, and death and sin enter the world. Man gets cast, and look, Satan, you imagine this. Satan's probably dancing. He's like, I did it. God, you're going to start all over again. I won. And God comes in and is like, uh, time out, no. Uh, we're not starting over. I'm not pushing the reset button. I'm going to keep going with this because eventually there's going to come a person from her offspring that you might crush his heel, but he's going to stomp your head. Proto-evangelium. Then a few, then a few uh, years, decades later, we have a man named Noah, 
Satan's thinking, oh, I got it again. The entire world is now corrupt because of that one moment. God's going to destroy everything. And God, Jesus, God comes in and is like, no, if I can find one <coughs> righteous person, I'm going to use that person and bring life back into the world. So we know that he calls Noah, and Noah builds this giant boat, and Satan's there going crazy, thinking the whole world's going to hell, and this is amazing. I win, and God's like, no, 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 no. I'm starting over with this person. There is a righteous person. He's got a righteous family. We're going to enter this new covenant with them. They're going to bring new life. Fast forward even a little further. A man named Abraham. God looks at Abraham and is like, hey, uh, I'm going to give you a son, and you are going to be the father of great nation." Your, your sons, your daughters will be as numerous as the stars or the sand on the, on the sandiest beach. The dude is 90. I don't know about you, but I don't see 90-year-olds popping out kids that often. It even says to the point where his wife, Sarah, was barren. And then Abraham's like, God, I can't wait any longer, so here's what I'm going to do. Your plans are limited. I'm going to go over here. I'm going to sleep with her. She's my maidservant, and I'm going to have a son because I need this blessing. And he has a son with his, with his woman named Hagar, and they have a a son named Ishmael. And God comes back through and says, yeah, whoa, 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 time out. That was not the plan. You're limited in your thinking. When I promise something, I stick to it. Your son, Ishmael, has now been banished. You and his mother have to leave. And here's my son that I'm going to give to you. And he gives birth to Isaac. But not only that, a little couple of years later, he goes, hey, I know you love your son Isaac, but here's what I want you to do. I know I made you a promise that you're going to be a father of a great nation. I want you to sacrifice him. Not really the, like, 12-step plan for parenting there. And Abraham obeys, goes up the mountain. Before he ever brings that knife down, God provides a ram to sacrifice the ram. The promise of him being a great nation came true. A couple, couple years later, we have a man named Joseph. What happened to Joseph? Anybody know? What did his brothers do? I heard it. Sold into slavery. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know how much you have to hate your own sibling to throw them into slavery. Sell them. Don't answer that question. But sell them into slavery. And you think, oh, my life's now ruined. Imagine yourself being Joseph. I have my own siblings, my own brothers, my own sisters have sold me off. My father's blessings no longer apply. I am now the, in the pit being tortured as a slave. He gets, he gets sold and he goes to Egypt. And even though when he's in Egypt, guess what happens? Because what, God, what man intended for harm, God intended for good, he becomes a political influencer and a leader within Egypt and becomes a great leader. Years later, Israelites are in captive. They're enslaved to Egypt for 400 years. Imagine yourself being enslaved. You can't even do it for 400 years. Longer than the United States has been around. Imagine that, 400 years of slavery, and you're thinking, God says my nation's going to be blessed. I don't think this looks like a pretty good blessing right now. They're whipping me. They're stoning me. This ain't a real blessing. To the point where Pharaoh's now concerned that there's so many Israelite men, they might, they're starting to outnumber the Egyptians. He's like, how am I going to handle this? And he goes out and he starts slaughtering the firstborn males of every family. But in that one fellow couple thought, no, we, gotta, we can't let this happen, so we're going to take our son, we're going to put him in a basket, and out of that came the, the person, Moses, who was floating down the river, picked up by Pharaoh's daughter, raised in Pharaoh's house. Even then, he goes to murder, he ends up murdering somebody, he has to leave Egypt, and God's like, hey, I know my people are still in Egypt, but the promises still apply, you're going to go back, and you're going to lead them out. So he goes back to Egypt, after arguing back and forth with God, he asks Pharaoh, can I go? He says no. He asks Pharaoh, can I go? He says no. Finally, he let, they get to leave. They, after all those plagues, they go out of Egypt, and now they're faced with what? 
Red Sea. And they start arguing, God, how can the world, can you lead us out of captivity right into a sea? Now they're right behind us. They are going to kill us. What kind of God does that? And he goes out to Moses. Moses, I'm going to take your staff, stick it in the river, and look what's going to happen. The seed parts. They go through it. As the Egyptians start coming through, the water comes back down, and they all drown. A little bit later, they start wanting kings and rulers. Israelites are like, everybody else has a king. And God's like, I am your king. It's like, no, no, no. We know that you're our king, but, you know, we want our own king. Not, you're good, but we want our own. We like that guy Saul. He's kind of hot looking. He's kind of studly looking. We think he'd be a great king. And God's like, if you want a king, that's not him. I want this guy over here named David. If you know the story, they still chose Saul, even though David was the anointed king. And after a while, David was the one who conquered Goliath. David is the one that rose to power. And it says, you are going to be the king of Israel, but I'm going to be your king, and you are going to rule with authority and sovereignty. But did he mess up? Big time. Became a murderer, an adulteress. But what came out of David's roots hundreds of years later? A man by the name of Jesus. But not even, not even to that point yet. What happened during the time of David, Saul, these people started coming around called prophets. They were saying, hey, this is the God you're supposed to follow. You're starting to follow all the nations of Israel or all the nations of this world. You're, you're bowing down to false prophets. You're bowing down to false gods like Baal. And you're, you're living life, and you're going to be destructed the rest of your life. You are headed towards destruction. You are a wicked people. Fun fact, quick story here. Did you know that in the 1850s, I just learned this on Saturday, in the 1850s, riverboat captains used to view Parkersburg as the most wicked city of Virginia. Hashtag title town, baby. Um, <laughs> I can tell you that another time. It's just, I just thought it was really cool. But they viewed Israel as this wicked city, and they're calling them to repentance. If you ever study the book of Habakkuk, some of our leaders have been studying this recently because I sent them an amazing sermon series. If you look at the book of Habakkuk, he looks at the people of Israel, and it's like, God, what are you doing? Why are you not answering? Why are you not listening? Why are you so limited? And Habakkuk gets a response back from God. It's like, look what I'm getting ready to do. You just wait. I'm going to send the people, your enemies, and I'm going to have them take over you. Okay, that does not sound like a really good plan. You're going to send my enemy to conquer me? Does not sound like a good plan. Then, after that last prophet spoke the word about the coming Messiah, guess what happens? 400 years of silence. No prophet speaks. No one speaks about the coming Messiah. But then on the... Then a man named John the Baptist comes, says, there is someone coming who is greater. There is someone who is part of God's plan. He was coming. He's going to be the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God who's going to be slain. And as he sees him coming, he says, there is a Lamb of God. He baptizes him, raises him back up. And Jesus goes on to do this amazing ministry for three years, performing miracles, signs, and wonders. But guess what? Guess who's still in the picture way over here waiting for things to go wrong? Satan. He even to the point where he tempts Jesus. He tempts him. And Jesus uses the authority of himself, but also the authority of Scripture to tell him to leave him alone. He has no authority over him. But then he thinks he hasn't made when Jesus walks into the city on one day and everyone screams Hosanna. And then three days later, Satan corrupts people enough to scream crucify him. And he thinks he's got it finally won whenever they nail him to a cross. They reject him and they put him in a grave. Satan's clapping. He's like, I did it. I did it. And Jesus rose up again in three days. And he's like, hashtag not today, Satan. I had to sneak it in there. 
Nothing can stop the plans of God. Nothing can do that. Job 42, 2. Job 42, 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of God can be thwarted. Nothing can stop the plans or the will of God. I know that you can do all things and that no purposes of God can be thwarted. The word thwarted means prevented. That what God said he was going to do in the beginning, guess what? He's going to do it. Huh? What did you not get? Nothing, and nothing can stop the plans or will of God. Huh? Oh, God works all things for the good, and not, not always earthly. Th- not always earthly comfort, but eternal promise. Sorry, I skipped one. <clears throat> so this idea that how could God allow these things to happen? How could God allow the things to happen in my life? How could God make these things happen? God's not making evil happen in your life. You all realize this? Satan does have power in this world. You do recognize that. He is as Philippian or as First Peter chapter five says. He's roaring like a. He's he's seeking to. He's roaring like a. A lion on the on the excuse me on the hunt. My translation, seeking to devour. He's looking at the weakest of you all. He says, I I see the weakness in them. I'm going to devour them. I'm going to get them distracted. I'm going to get them discouraged to the point where they're going to put limitations on God that they don't believe what He actually says is true. I'm going to ruin God's plans for their life. But nothing can stop the plans of the will of God. Nothing can prevent that. Romans chapter 11 verse 33. And we're going to wrap this up here in a second. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. After Paul does all this, after he says all these chapters worth of all these things, he says God is sovereign, God is good, God is a mighty God. Chapter 11, verse 33. He says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable is his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him to him are all things to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What he says there is you guys cannot even grasp how big God is. To give you an example of this, here's a quick story or a quick illustration. So imagine a perfectly smooth glass pavement on which the finest speck, the finest speck can be seen. Then shrink our sun from 865,000 miles in diameter to only two feet in diameter and place the ball, that sun, on the pavement to represent the sun. Step off 83 paces, about two feet per pace, to represent proportionally the first planet, Mercury, and put down a tiny mustard seed. Take 60 steps more for Venus, put an ordinary BB from a BB gun. Mark 78 more steps, put down a green pea representing Earth. Step off 108 paces from there and, put, and for Mars, put down a pinhead. Sprinkle around some fine dust for the asteroids. Then take 788 steps more. For Jupiter, place an orange on the glass at the, at the spot. Mark 2,086 steps for Uranus, a marble. Another 2,322 steps from there, you arrive at Neptune. Let a cherry represent Neptune. This will take two and a half miles, and we haven't even discussed Pluto yet. On this surface, five miles across, we have only a seed, a BB, a pea, a pinhead, some dust, an orange, a golf ball, a marble, and a cherry. So far, here's how far we've come. We'd have to go on the same scale before we could put down another two football, two football in diameter to represent the nearest star. So how far do you think this is? 
6,720 miles before we arrived at the next star in that same dimensions. Miles, not feet. 6,720 miles. And that's just the first star that's closest to us. Imagine that, and you try to imagine that, and now try to imagine the mind of God. You cannot even limit space, and the man who created space you're trying to limit and put into a box. You cannot do it. But how do we respond to this? In response to God's sovereignty, man can find their purpose. In response to God's sovereignty, man can find their purpose. In Romans chapter 11, it says, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been, who has been his counselor? Who has given him a gift? For from him and through him and to him are all things. Paul is now worshiping. He's now looking at God and saying, with everything that I have, when the words that I'm trying to say don't even mount up, I'm just going to do audible noise, like you all just sang earlier. I'm just going to give everything that I have. Romans chapter 12, the very next sentence. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your tr spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by, the testing of, by, the, by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect. That the only response that we can have to this, the purpose that you and I have, our response to a sovereign God is to be transformed into worship. That's what we're supposed to do. There's a, there's a quote, I'm going to do this and one more passage, then we're done. A quote. Our duty is found in the revealed will of God in the scriptures. Our trust must be in the sovereign will of God as he works in the ordinary circumstances of our daily lives for our good and for his glory. That the reason why we have a purpose is that we have a sovereign God. The reason why we worship is that we have a sovereign God who has had plans from the beginning. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He has written the beginning, the middle. The end's not yet written, but guess what? Do you know what happens in the end? We win. You win. And what happens so often is that when it says transform the renewal of your mind, you allow your mind to already have written your story. You already think you know the outcome of your story. You already, know how, you already think you know where you are going. You have no idea what God has in store for every single one of us. And you allow other people, you allow the world, you allow social media, you allow the, the comparisons on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat to write your life better than what, you, what, your, what your limitless God can do. A limitless God is writing and authoring your life now, here's how I'm going to close. There's a real struggle in this world to think your story's ending. And I'm not talking about when you think you're 85 and coming to an end. But when, you, when, when that guy dumps you, when that girl dumps you, or when, when all the world's crashing down, when your mom and dad are splitting, when your parents have died, when your grandparents have died, all, these, all this hell is going on in your life. You think, my story is over well, remember that nothing can stop the perfect will and plans of God because what Satan thought he did in Genesis chapter 3 where he stopped God's plan did not end. He thought it ended when, God put, when man put Jesus in the grave, but it, didn't, it did not end. It's still not ending. God still has a perfect plan and will for your life, for my life, and he is still writing it. Do not take away the pen. You have a limit on a limitless God. Do not do that. To close, in Psalm chapter 150. Ben, you can guys, go ahead, sorry, go ahead and come up here. Psalm chapter 150. 
if our response is to worship the sovereign and good God, if that's what we are called to do, listen to this in Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him in according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with a trumpet sound. Praise him with a lute and a harp. Praise him with a tambourine and dance. Praise him with the strings and the pipe. Praise him with the sounding cymbals. Praise him with the loud crashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Your story is still being written. The same God who is recklessly pursuing you, the same God that you were given everything back, is still writing your story. He is still calling you. He is still leading you. The only thing that we can do is respond in worship.